Welcome to the Death Dialogues Project Podcast. I'm your host, Becky Odd Jennison, and I can guarantee you that you will be a better human for listening to these stories. Thanks for being here. It's always fascinating to hear the early death experiences that lead people to their life's work. And today's episode is right in that vein. We hear a fascinating beginning and complicated beginning of looking into death and experiencing it as a young person. And then listening to how Dr. Annetta Mallon has um, gone on to work as an end-of-life consultant and doula, and she's a speaker, writer, editor, and much, much more. She works with grief and loss as a psychotherapist, looking at trauma as a specialty. So I think that you are going to really enjoy hearing the humanness from Anetta and understanding how the more we have experienced in our own lives and worked through our processes and are engaged in our processes and keep our heart and um, mind wide open, we are better able to serve in the capacity when we're looking at the areas of death and grief. Thank you so much for being here today. Hello, Annetta. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode. It's a pleasure to be here, Becky. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure for me. And I would wonder if you would just care to tell the people where you're at in the world. And I know you have some stories or a story of loss that you could share with us before we get into um, how that informed the area that you went into for your life, if that's okay with you. Absolutely. So this, my early introduction to death and loss is sort of a two part and that spans several years. So in my birthplace, which is in North America, uh, I come from um, the Northern part of North America. So it snows during the winter. And I grew up with one of the family's stories being that um, there were a a pair of young men riding motorcycles along the highway that we lived along, and one of them didn't make a turn and actually crashed onto our land into some trees. And unfortunately, his body wasn't discovered until the spring when the ground started melting and the body began to decompose and we could smell it. Um, and this happened, I think, before I was born, but I remember being very concerned about the man's friend, the other motorcycle rider, and the confusion and the worry and the concern that he must have experienced. So right from the very start for me, death was not even though it's something that happens to one person. And I think that our our deaths are like our births and that each of them is unique. But there is a ripple effect. It's not not just us when we go, usually, um, humans being social animals. So then fast forward (coughs) 
excuse me, fast forward um, several years to when I'm in my early teens. And I had a rather fraught relationship with um, my father who had divorced my mother and, and remarried. And my father was quite an abusive person. And his, um, his second wife was quite an enabler. And in fact, there was a member of her family whose uh, a spouse was actually molesting young children, and I was one of them. But I also had quite a nice relationship, um, paradoxically in a sense, with her mother. So um, my stepmother's mother died of cancer, and she actually died at home with cancer, and that was quite unusual for that time in Australia. Many deaths were, most deaths really, um, that were medicalized were taking place in hospitals. But I was in the room when, um, when my stepmother's mother died. And there were three daughters, and only two of them were in the room. And I was sort of sitting in an armchair across, across the room. I had come to say goodbye. I had chosen to do that, even though I was, um, really not spending very much time with my father or my stepmother at this point in time. So I'd, I'd traveled on the train and gone up to, um, to the town that, um, that she lived in and gone to the house. And my stepmother was in the room and one of her sisters. And there was a nurse in the room. And I was really struck and still am to this day at the desperation of this woman who was doing the, the work of dying and she had a daughter clinging to each hand and looming over her in the bed, uh, desperately trying to get one last response, one last word um, to be noticed, to have some kind of connection. I'm not actually to this day entirely sure what all of the motivations were. Um, and then she did die. And the nurse, interestingly, went out of her way to say, oh, um, did you notice she, she smiled at the end? She was, she was smiling. She was happy. Um, and I thought that that was a rather odd thing to have said, but I didn't unpack that until I was an adult, but that kind of stayed with me. And then um, the third daughter, who happened to be the, the wife of the person who was molesting me, um, she came in after her mother had died and was absolutely devastated because she hadn't been there to say the final last goodbye and collapsed sobbing. Um, I found it interesting to be in a room where I was very sure that I was okay with my relationship with the woman who died, that I had said my goodbyes. I was glad I was there, but I didn't necessarily feel any need to be overly overly emotional because something was lacking for me. I guess things felt complete for me. And I suppose in a sense this has informed my genuine and real interest in conversations around final wishes and transparency around death literacy 
and as much communication as possible because this was a very troubled family. There were a lot of secrets um, and a lot of a lot of it from many of the members of the family was cloaked under um, a sort of, yes, but I'm a good religious person, so we don't talk about that. I mean, even even my stepmother's mother herself had basically told me a little while before she died that she knew something was going on in the family, but we couldn't talk about it. And she'd, she'd say things like that just before she went to church. Um, so I, I also began at a very early age to really be very critical in my thinking around what belief does to people and how that can, rather than foster open communication, it can actually um, be used as a mechanism to thwart communication or to engender more fear than we need around what is obviously the very, very natural process of end of life, dying, death, and then all of the afters when someone dies. Um, and so even, even though I wasn't, it wasn't a long, drawn-out, um, horrible death, I, I think that I can happily say that uh, when my stepmother's mother died, she had good pain management, which is a lovely thing. Um, I didn't notice any particular issues with restlessness or breathlessness. So her death in that sense was actually quite a nice one, but there was an agony in the people around her that was um, that was distressing and, and took me a long time to sort of unpack and come to terms with. But I was quite, I, I'm, I was and am quite okay with the way that uh, she herself did the work of dying and, and then died. So what age were you at that time? Um, it's, it's kind of difficult for me to, that's the $64,000 question because I had quite a, a traumatic and, and reasonably violent upbringing. I, I have a lot of memory suppression, but mm -hmm. I think I was about 14 years old. Wow. So, you know, early to mid teens, I, I was old enough. I was old enough to have gotten on a train by myself. That was, a, that was a big deal that I didn't need to rely on anyone to get me there. And family dynamics being what they were, that was, that was the only way. It, I needed to make the decision to go myself and take myself to see her. And I chose to do that. So I was old enough to be able to do that on a train. That just is staggering to me. What a, what a strong young person you were. And especially knowing the history, right? And yeah. You know, I, I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> I think you have a point. I, I think about it now. It's like, hmm, if I had a child, which I don't, I am child-free by choice, but yes, I'm not sure I'd, <laughs> I'd be okay with a 14-year-old getting on a train. I hadn't, I genuinely hadn't thought about that. It's just, I mean, I just did it. Well, and, and, and beyond the train itself is the, what you were walking into and, you know, I, I'm just speaking in generalities, but a 14 year old thinking of where they're at developmentally, thinking of the abuse going on that is in that family system, you know, many 14 year olds would have run from that 
you know, they would have not walked openly into that with a mission to say goodbye. That I, that really shows me a depth of, um, a, a bit of a gifted depth that you were holding then. It's quite fascinating. Thank you. Um, she was overall a good person and she had been good to me. So it, it seemed appropriate to do that. And mm -hmm. I didn't, I didn't have, I didn't have any other experience of death. So I didn't know that it didn't occur to me not to go, mm -hmm. which was something that later in retrospect, I thought that was interesting because you didn't have to. Like it was, a, it was a long train ride. It was about an hour. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, it wasn't like it was a quick little tram hop of a few blocks or a neighborhood or two. I actually went from, from one regional area into a city. So. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So I, I'm, I'm struck too by your um, comments about that first experience with the motorcycle riders and the story behind that. I'm actually right now kind of unpacking my history with death as a child as well, um, have gone through mm. that. And I'm fascinated hearing that how children, um, and we can't, we just don't know how that's going to show up for kids, but, but I think it's a real eye opening experience for adults if you didn't have that type of experience with death as a child to understand how big stories surrounding death are for children and how much they may hold on to that, that we're not aware of. Um, it's fascinating. Oh, yes. Yeah. And I'm, I'm a staunch advocate for being really honest with children. Mm. I mean, many, on many occasions when I've, been doing um, public education talks and dying to know day talks. Um, people will ask me, oh, there's, there's a funeral coming up. Uh, there's a funeral next week. Um, should, should I bring my, my child or my children? And I just look at them and I say, well, have you asked them? And, oh, no. Uh, should I? Well, why wouldn't you? Mm. Children are capable of making decisions and children are capable of understanding if something feels right and seems right for them. And you know, they're perfectly entitled to change their minds. They might say no in the beginning and then say yes or vice versa. Uh, and that's okay too. I think informed consent is not only for adults when it comes to death. And I think it's dangerous to make decisions and to take away information and choice and agency from children. Um, I, one, at one event in particular, for example, uh, I remember talking about the importance of being honest with children where I, I'm an atheist, so I'm a rationalist and I'm secular. And, and of course, with some clients, we talk about potential life after death, or we talk about belief, or we talk about reincarnation, because that's important for the client, and I'm there for them. But I will never lie to someone, and I would never lie to a child. And I, I was relating a story of when I'd actually been at a speaking event, and a funeral celebrant 
had sort of taken over and insisted that I needed to offer people something more. And I asked, well, what do you mean by that? She said, well, you just need to give them something more. And I always tell children that um, when someone dies, they become a butterfly in heaven, and, and they love that. <laughs> and I said, well, um, okay, I might, I might eat your children because I'm not a fan of children, but I would never lie to them. So, no, I'm not ever going to do that. And I would, don't recommend that anyone does that because I, that's just death denial and that's not serving anyone. The owner of the venue came up to me after that. I'm sorry. Said, I, I've just, I can't stop laughing here for a second. And no, and it's your and that you would away. eat the children that you won't like. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes! Look, uh, hand me your puppies. Don't hand me your children. <laughs> oh, um. okay. But now I hear you. I totally hear you. Yes. And um, it's, uh, yeah, it so the owner, it's to make the the storyteller feel better, right? This like, was this was making the celebrant feel better, and and the control that she clearly was relishing in that that she had the answers and she was going to keep all the children safe. And how dare I? So the owner of the venue where I told that story came up to me afterwards and I really wish she'd spoken up in the moment and, and I told her, please tell everyone you know, about your experience. Someone, and I don't know if it's the same celebrant, but someone had told a friend's child um, something similar just that year. And that child had night terrors and nightmares about butterflies. She had full-blown panic attacks every time she saw a butterfly. Because, oh, we have to keep the butterfly alive or someone's going to die. She began to have all sorts of very strange and horrific, monstrous um, beliefs that took a long time to calm down about butterflies and death. So it didn't work as this happy little symbol because she just accepted that heaven was a nice place and didn't think about it. She was genuinely concerned that someone she knew would die every mm. time she saw a butterfly or if the butterfly died, someone would drop dead in front of her. It got very convoluted. And, and so that was someone who had seen firsthand how damaging not being honest and open about communicating about death, talking about death, expressing final wishes, letting children know, well, that's the natural end of life. Death is the natural end of life. Everything dies. We all die. It's such an example of, you know, the varying stages with the concrete thinking of a child. And parents, listeners need to keep that in mind with the stories you tell. And um, it's a perfect, it's a really beautiful example of that. You know, how could, how could anybody be afraid of a butterfly? Well, you, you know, when you're in that age that you don't get abstract thinking yep. and um, metaphor and um, actually the adults taking care of themselves more than they're taking care of the child, these things happen where the child can get stuck in the concreteness of yes. the thinking around that. Yes. And I think it's also an unnecessary and arguably quite damaging perversion of natural childhood curiosity. Mm. And it, it's, it's perfectly fine to be age appropriate in the way that we talk about the effect of death. You know, so when a, when a guinea pig or a cat or a dog dies, um, which is more likely to happen um, 
particularly with smaller pets, as we know, rabbits and guinea pigs living domestically, maybe three to five years, pretty good chance if you have a pet in the house, death is going to be something the child understands. Mm -hmm. But we don't need to, I don't, I've never seen the point of cloaking that in, in metaphor or misframing or a, a displacement story. Do you remember what you were told now. as a child? Yes, we die, which is yeah. very interesting too because I was raised in a Catholic household. My mother was Catholic, mm -hmm. and I attended Catholic church until I was 12, and then my critical thinking wouldn't let me do that anymore. <laughs> and the priest refused to answer any more questions because I would come up and say, this what about that uh he actually shut the door in my face one day and that was the last time i went to church um which is okay i went off and sought answers elsewhere and started doing research into it um but we were, we were simply told um uh, thankfully i am the daughter of teachers and they understood the value of genuine information transfer we die mm -hmm. i was never told that our dog went to a farm our dog, you know, our dogs died and were buried. And you weren't told stories of heaven? No. Well, no. It's, there's, there was a rather interesting disconnect, I think, where heaven probably happened in church, which was once a week on a Sunday morning. And then I, for me, that never really impacted the rest of my life. Um, which I suppose, thinking about it, is not – that was probably pretty common. I knew a few people who were really fervently religious constantly, but it was more of a try to behave reasonably and decently to people in your day-to-day -day life, and the most of the religiosity took place in church. Um, I did understand the concept of, of heaven and hell and tried to wrap my head around the idea of purgatory. That took me a while. I probably didn't fully grasp that until I was in my 20s and, and already quite secular. Mm -hmm. But yes, we, but we weren't told that our dogs had gone to heaven. We just were told that they died. Okay. Yeah. I don't remember being particularly upset by that either. Mm -hmm. because it was simply matter – possibly because it was matter of fact and possibly because I'm a pragmatic sort of person too. Mm -hmm. I just have this vision when you're saying, you know, I left the church at 12, the age of 12, and you found your way, this vision of you finding your way to the bedside of someone dying at the age of 14. That's church. Mm. <laughs> Is it? Because I just think it's being human. No, I mean, teach what we call the, I mean, that is humanity. That is compassion. That is those lessons that we receive, supposedly, but many people never act out that actually go. Yes. And live their lives within a church walls. You left and you showed up at a very young age. <laughs> to someone on their deathbed. I just, that's pretty profound. And that informed you is what I've heard you say with our little earlier talk. You didn't tell me this story, but you said it, it, it greatly informed 
you think the work, the path that you took with your life then with death? Oh, yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Because, um, everyone dies. We've all checked. We know it's a 10 out of 10 stat. Um, it, despite the, without fail, when I'm doing a, an undergraduate talk at university, um, I usually start out with the question, who in the room is going to die? And there will generally be a few stalwart people in the front row with their arms crossed going, nope, not me. I'm like, well, not this moment because I'm a very entertaining speaker, but eventually all of us will die, <laughs> but I appreciate your optimism. So isn't it interesting that we have such a persistent denial of death and this um, insistence that we we – cannot talk about i mean death is kind of like sex you know if you say mm. sex you get pregnant if you say death you die but the this very strange thinking we have around contagion and attraction that that very deep-seated old superstitious pattern that if we say the thing the thing arrives well the thing will arrive eventually but quite possibly not today. So let's get some advanced planning done. Or let's talk about your funeral playlist. Or you know, how would you like to be remembered? What would your quality what would you like your quality of life to be? If you know if possible. These I think part of I think part of it for me is I ha I have real issue, genuine issue with um with the insistence that talking about end of life, talking about advanced planning is quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes, but you can't see it. It's hard. <laughs> mm, it's, oh, it's tough. It's so tough. And I just, I, gosh, I just want to scream. <laughs> no, mm. it's important. We're using, we need to shift our parameters, our thinking. It's not tough unless we insist it is. It's not hard unless we make it so, but it is really, really important. It saves so much stress, agonizing stress. I will probably never forget the the genuine agony that the, the three daughters were in at the time of their mother's death. Why wasn't that easier for everyone? Why didn't the two daughters in the room at that I didn't particularly like any of these women. I do want to be really clear. They, from my perspective, they were not necessarily any of them very nice people, but they were in genuine mm -hmm. agony. It was really why was it so hard? Why hadn't they had the opportunity or permitted themselves opportunities to talk with their mother, to have conversations, maybe to talk amongst themselves so that it wasn't so wrenching? and inexpressibly painful for them at the at the inevitable end of their mother's life this is what i would like for everyone that all of us have even when it is painful loss is painful death is painful and i'm i'm certainly not trying to deny that or would ever deny that it's hard when someone dies but i don't see why talking about planning and final wishes and arrangements and ideas. I'm, for example, at my funeral, the very first song that's going to be played is Cindy Lauper's Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Aww. There. <laughs> I say, it's a great fun track. You know, blow some bubbles, toss some glitter around. These are things that brought me happiness in life. 
Um, I also think we have a very strange metric that I would very much like to see flipped, where after we die, the amount of money spent on us will show us how much we were loved. What if we spent a lot of that money on having a really good quality end of life? And we had a modest amount for body disposal and funeral afterwards. Why aren't more of us attending funerals and celebrations while we're still alive so we can tell the people around us how much they meant to us? I think when we made it really hard rather than important, we're missing a lot. And we culturally reward that which is important. If we all thought about end-of-life planning and and conversations around death and dying as important, we would all be doing them. We'd be treating them like our taxes. And we know we'd be treating them like taxes because we would be looking for loopholes, right? Because all of us mm-hmm. occasionally secretly think, yeah, I won't die. It's not going to happen to me. <laughs> Just like taxes. But we we would have them more regularly and it would be more socially accepted. So whenever I'm working with anyone, I would say, now these conversations are very important. <laughs> These talks are really important. And I never use hard or tough or challenging because that just sets people up to go, eh, it's in the too hard basket. I won't worry about it. Mm -hmm. I see it as, um, as a parent, I see it as one of the greatest acts of compassion I can do for my children. Um, Oh, that's a lovely way of putting it. Yes. Well, when you say it's tough, you know, for the writer, right? So if you're coming to me and I'm like, it's tough, it's tough. This framing of uh, the toughness, as you described for the family, when they don't know what the person wishes. And I feel, I, I don't know if you know this, but you know, we have our handwoven willow coffin in our living room as part of our furniture. We, I do know that. And I think it's wonderful. (laughs) And, you know, we've, we've, and, and this goes into wills and, and the advanced directives and, and the playlist for a funeral. I mean, I have gotten great joy and, you know, people may think I'm a death witch and that's why, but that's not it. Just on a human level to think that I could, Mm. You know, at the same time, my instructions for my children are not directive as far, you know, I want them to know that, that I want it to be beautiful for them or easy for them. So it's directive where it needs to be directive, but it's also, um, gives them a sense of creativity, you know, do what you, I, I want, it's for the living. I want you to be comfortable, but I do have a kick-ass playlist. And a song to dance me oh, out on. Yes. That brings me great joy. <laughs> That's fabulous. Thank you for telling me that. That's I'm always delighted when somebody says, oh, no, no, I've got my playlist. Fabulous. Yeah. No, and it did. It, and it, I think even to play it, it brings me joy. It's like I can imagine how they'll feel when they hear the song. You know, the I'm a real big one, <laughs> like music brings emotion for me. I'm incorporating that in my writing as well. And I have through all stages of my life, the joys and the losses. And um, yeah, no, it brings me, it brings me great satisfaction. So yeah, I do think we need a reframing. I think 
a lot of times, you know, I was in the hospital setting, working in with people very ill for a period of time as the mind body person. And, you know, Mm -hmm. we use the advanced directives and the forms. And I do think it gets a super clinical, sterile rap for a lot of people that it just feels it's all about tubes. It's all about shutting machines off or that type of thing. There needs to be Mm. a huge reframing. And it sounds like that's what you're doing with your work. And I bow to you for that. I'm, I'm I'm trying very hard. Thank you. I do. I do try really hard. Um, I think it's it's harder to to step away from the tubes when the planning is taking place in medicalized environments. I think it's a different kind of discussion and a different kind of focus if the planning is taking place. And and believe me, if planning needs to take place in a hospital, then do it wherever you are. That's great. Right, um, right. But the biomedical framework is a juggernaut. And it's a juggernaut with a good deal of authority and it it tends to take no prisoners and it will insist that that's the focus. So we talk about removing tubes and we talk about peg feeding and we talk about lots and lots of very clinical stuff that is different when you're sitting down, maybe in your backyard, maybe at a cafe. Um, if we're not, If I'm not meeting with clients at a cafe, I'll show up with cake. So we can have something nice to drink and something nice to eat. We have a cup of tea um, and and something sweet to eat. And and we talk about quality of life. And we mm. talk about um, preference. And, and it's more about what the individual, the person would like rather than, okay, so from a medical or biomedical necessity standpoint, what are your hard limits? And I think it's um, – <clears throat> I think it's important to recognize too that these are in-depth discussions. These are not things that you just knock out in 15 minutes um, while you're multitasking, learning, juggling. I generally recommend with when I'm working with clients on planning that we, we take at least two sessions and they can be lengthy sessions. I often budget three hours of time for each session for that because it is important. And then of course it's a living document. You, so I think it's also important to go back and check it annually. Are these still your wishes? Is this still what you would like? But when the planning has taken place, excuse me, <coughs> pardon me. When planning has taken place, it is such a gift of love to the people closest to you because mm. you're not saying to them, I know you're in really raw grief right now. I know you're completely numb, you're completely frozen, and you just want to howl at the world. And But would you just put all of that on hold? And then would you go over here with a salesperson and pick which box I'm going to be stuck in? And would you try and stave off the upselling on the flowers and the catering and everything else? And it's, um, I mean, there's nothing wrong with money and funeral homes are businesses and that's okay they're not charities but if you plan in advance and you want to have your body at home for a few days mm-hmm. so that maybe your grandchildren can say goodbye to you or your band can come and play music around you one last time mm-hmm. if you don't plan in advance these things don't happen and why would you want to make people guess what you wanted it's fantastically stressful so it costs emotional 
time and energy. It costs a good and deal it, of money. And it, it and it costs that initial precious grieving time. And what a comfort when you're in that space and there's you know, for instance, poetry being read or music being played that you know your loved one picked up. I mean, I've been in those situations and the sense is they are here. This was what they chose. Their presence yes. remains in their planning of that space and time. Yes. It's, and yeah, then it's amazing. Something else that I think is quite lovely to do is you know, share your favorite memory or like the silliest moment or, you know, maybe the the thing that that person said that made you grow up a little bit more or made you see the world. We change each other. That's the nature mm. of human connection. And isn't it lovely when we don't have to sit down and deal with guest planning and guest arrangements and we can just focus on everything we loved about the, even the stuff that drove us nuts. <laughs> like they never put the, the cap back on the toothpaste, <laughs> but we love them anyway. Right. And we, we love them as best we could and why they were so important in our lives. This is, mm. this is an incredible thing to be able to share and to be aware of. And it's part mm. of, it's part of mourning. I get very passionate about this. <laughs> That's beautiful. I mean, you have to be passionate about it to do the work you're doing on the level that you're doing. You don't, you know, that's not a, a clinical approach. <laughs> it's a heart to heart <laughs> approach. Mm. Mm. Well, I'm just, um, I'm wanting to hear more about tell us what your work involves now. I I hear the advanced directives opportunities. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but it but when I was doing my minimal research, it looked like it was multifaceted. If you could share a bit more. Well, I have three arms to my business now, and the first is end of life work. And services. So I offer advanced planning, education uh, in, in the form of community events and public talks that I give. I also work one-to-one -one with clients and I offer end-of-life doula services where I not only help people with planning but I companion and support. So I work with um, the the person who is at end of life and often the compassionate community immediate network around them, if that's appropriate and if they have that. Um, and then I also, because I've been a psychotherapist for over three decades, I do a lot of work in the grief spaces. So uh, my background is actually with injury and trauma recovery and grief and loss, and I'm quite experienced with PTSD. So I work with people who may have been triggered in their grief uh, from previous trauma, as well as with people who've been exposed to violent or unexpected death 
I use a lot of EFT in my work. I find that that's very, very effective. So um, whether it's a single death or multiple deaths, um, I'm I'm working with um, with clients in those areas as well. Um, so the psychotherapy work is essentially an arm of the business that in a sense is separate to the end of life work because people may come to me for older grief. It may not necessarily be that someone is, is dying now and they are looking for support there. The third arm of my business is very, very new and I have launched online end-of-life consultant training. So it's inclusive and comprehensive. I look at historical, cultural, and social factors around death and dying, death literacy, and the full arc and spectrum of end-of-life work, including uh, after-death body care and home funeral work, which I suppose I should have mentioned in services because I also um, support people in having family-led and home funeral experiences. I have a cold plate that people can rent to if they want to keep uh, a body at home. You do need to have cooling in place within eight hours of death. That's the law in Australia. Some people like to use techni ice or frozen drink bottles. It's fine. But I also have a cold plate um, that people can use if they would um, like to rent that. So I, I also write, I maintain a blog, and um, I, I mentor and support peers. Um, and I've started working with students. One of the, one of the differences with my course is uh, it's quite extensive. The, if you undertake all four core tiers and at least two of the master classes that are on offer, I then offer a micro-credentialing badge for your website. So um, some of my work is now devoted to supporting students and helping them with self-exploration and um, answering questions and facilitating their learning process. So that's me. Quite comprehensive. I try. <laughs> mm, mm. It's, it's evidence-based. I, I like to think that it is. Can you talk to, I, I know you're throwing around like the the cold plate and death doula services, just remembering many of our listeners may not understand what those are, especially, you know, in America, um, I found, uh, you know, we did keep my brother at home in Michigan, but the funeral director who was very supportive said that it was his first time to not have embalming oh. and for a body to be left at home and was, you know, we kept them home for three days, three nights, I think. And, um, but I know a lot of our listeners are in the States and this is, uh, even though we have a beautiful, you know, people doing death doula work it, in the, in America is you probably are familiar with, there tends to be pockets, right? So you'll find, progressive pockets that are doing some forward thinking things in all different areas. But in the mm. vast majority of areas, it's probably still very conservative um, death and funeral work. So yeah, if you wouldn't mind, what does a death doula do? And I know that can vary okay, with so people. So tell us about what you do as a death doula. 
sounds okay. like you do some All right. hands-on so there, work. You've actually, you've actually put your finger right on the nub of international practice, and I did some, some research into this, um, some, some formal research. Um, so I'm happy to answer this question. First of all, I use the term end-of-life doula rather than okay. death because you, know, you can't see this, but I'm clicking my fingers. Death is a moment. And frequently uh, the, the doula work um, takes place over a span of time. Um, but death, I mean, death doula is fine. It's, it's quite possibly a little bit easier. Um, the term doula itself is a little bit contentious. It's inherently female which makes invisible non-binary and male workers in the field. Um, it also has – it's it's a little bit contentious as to the exact translation. There are some native Greek speakers who say it doesn't mean worker or servant. It doesn't mean what you mean, think it means. But someone who is in service is sort of the westernized, anglicized interpretation. Uh, there are birth doulas who work with – pregnant women and who are non-medical coaches and support people during birth. And um, some also have training to be postnatal doulas. I work at the end. I've been a birth doula. Not as good a fit for me as end of life and death. So I work at the Ooh. other transition. Um, so an end of life doula or a death doula works to, it's a non-medical role. We're client-centered and client-focused, and we work to offer presence and support to someone at end of life. I happen to be quite red-hot on advocacy and informed choice, so if you work with someone like me, you also get lots of information about your rights and options and choices at end of life. Now, in the UK and Canada and the USA, the end-of-life or death doula role finishes um, at death. So End of Life Doula UK, for example, which is a wonderful training organization and um, living well, dying well, um, they'll help place you with um, a doula. They build in two follow-up visits after a death, but that's it. Um, in the USA, there are, of course, local and state regulations <clears throat> But the doula role again ends with death because then in most places you need to have particular training in mortuary um, and I think embalming is sort of built into that in the USA uh, to be able to work with a body. So if you go to the Home Funeral Alliance, you can work with a home funeral guide in the USA. However, unless they have the mortuary training, they're not physically permitted legally to touch a body. The family, however, can do that, and the home funeral guide can support them in that process, but it's not supposed to be hands-on unless you've got the relevant training. In Australia, it becomes a little bit more confusing because of our legislation being different. And so an end-of-life doula in Australia can work all the way from planning through to home funeral. Um, although transporting bodies is a different sort of insurance and really if you're going to be doing any sort of handling of, of bodies for after-death body care and your hands-on, you really need to have a different kind of insurance 
and some of the state-by-state -state legislation is starting to change. So, example, in Western Australia, which is, huh, spoiler alert, the great big virtually one-third of the continent to the west, you need to actually apply for a one-off permission to conduct a funeral. It's, it's a particular form. They're making the process more complex, uh, and that's a protectionist practice around corporate funeral directors. Um, because, you know, a lot of this is political and it's around profit. Most of the rest of the country, however, you um, anyone can conduct a funeral because the, the cause of death certificates, um, all the paperwork, of course, are handled by doctors. So anyone can conduct a funeral. So you can choose to hire a celebrant, you can choose to work with a funeral home, or you can choose to do things at home, or a combination of that. And some people are choosing to work with um, end-of-life doulas. Or um, if you're trained by Zenith Varego in the north of New South Wales, you're, you're a, a death walker. That's what she calls the people who've trained with her. So there is, there is a difference between Australia and um, essentially what's happening sort of in English-speaking northern hemisphere. But I think it would be useful to define the roles more effectively here in Australia so that we're more in line with international practice. And then some of the confusion that you have very rightly pointed out where well, people in the USA might have a different understanding of what we're doing here in Australia. That helps to minimise that. And I think end-of-life work generally is moving towards a point where there will be common understandings and common agreements. And then it's simply a matter of getting um, those understandings out into a broader community understanding. And that will come with um, more death literacy and, and more community education around rights and options and choices at end of life. Is that helpful? Yeah, yes, that is helpful. And um, I have heard a bit of frustration from some people in the field in the States because um, the states, you know, there's a tendency for things to get over-regulated and all sorts of mm. different certifications pop up and licensure or this and that, and it ends up really equating to um, money-making ventures, maybe more than trying to actually regulate. And um, this is such, that's something that's really beautiful about New Zealand is their um, lack of dictating uh, what you do with your loved one after. I mean, there are obviously burial guidelines, et cetera, but, but there is no problem with taking care of the dying person within your own home and then keeping them home for as long as you like. Oh, yes, you can, you can die at home in Australia too, no problem. Um, mm -hmm. You don't Well, And I think you can die at home or... in the States as well. It's the... It's the yes. segue then, you know, so many people, I, I did the death walker training with the Zenith Virago and one of the most beautiful things for people to always remember, as she would say, is when the person <laughs> dies, make a cup of tea Put the because on. we're so trained <laughs> right. in the States to go dial the emergency services number to bring the ambulance that comes to save lives yeah. generally to pick up our, you know, and, and, and we just have to reprogram that and. 
I had told my sister-in-law that yes. before I left. And that's that why this it's... can be some of the most beautiful time to yeah. just have that, even if it's an hour or two, even if it's half a day, just to remember you don't have, it's not an emergency. It's not an emergency. You don't have to call for someone immediately. No, however, it's, um, and, and this is why the, the cup of tea or coffee is, is so useful because it's another muscle memory that kicks in. Yes. So we have, we have the dying triple O, sorry, dialing triple, dying triple O, dialing triple O, which <laughs> is our emergency number in Australia. Um, or, you know, put the kettle on and, and, and do that particular process, which will give you a moment to stop and think. I do need to emphasize, however, though, that really that's when the death is expected. Yes. When the death Absolutely. is expected yes. there and, and someone has seen their GP, uh, their doctor within, I think it's about three months, then that's okay. And, and of course, right. if you, if you dial, uh, triple zero, then there is a mandate to resuscitate. Although we now have paperwork that can be downloaded, um, here in New South Wales from the New South Wales ambulance site. And as long as that is signed off, um, by the person concerned and their doctor, that removes the mandate to resuscitate. So we're actually becoming less um, trauma focused and less critically into critical intervention focused about death, which I think is really healthy because if a if a death is expected and takes place at home, we can channel um, paramedic resources more effectively. Right. And to, thank you for bringing that if, up. If That's we think, so well, you don't actually have to go through all of that. You can, you can pull back and, and thank you very much. And so you, you can call a doctor and they can come to the house and, and fill out the paperwork and liaise with births, deaths and marriages for you. But again, your, your kind reminder, that's expected deaths, which I tend to. Yeah. Forget sometimes to mention that, but you know, it goes without saying that, that. When it's an yeah, unexpected because death, death is normal and happens to all of us. But right. yes, it's when the death is expected. So you've got a terminal or life-limiting diagnosis in place, and they're seeing the doctor regularly, and you and you're okay. Yeah. And again, planning. Yes, absolutely. Well, Anetta, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to be with us today, and I would love if you would. Some people won't go directly to our program notes where we'll have your links if they were going to go one place right now because they're excited about hearing <laughs> from you. Where would you want them to go? Where would you direct them to? Uh, if you're, I'm going to, I like choice. So if you're good at remembering names, you can find me on Instagram, Annetta.Mallon. If you would like to read more about my work, or and to contact me, go to gdep.com.au. So GDEP stands for Gentle Death Education and Planning, which is the name of my business. GDEP.com.au. Thank you so much, Becky. Well, we will have those links at the end, um, at the pro in the program notes. So everybody, go to where the platform you're listening now, and there'll be notes. 
and the links will be there to find more information because it sounds like now I, I did have a quick question about your services. Do you do online um, psychotherapy? Absolutely. Yes. Yes, I do. Okay. I do and then, um, online, online psychotherapy and I also do. Yes. And I do uh, online uh, advanced planning and I also do online doula work, including virtual vigiling. So wow. if you would like me to be a presence in the room as you are dying uh, and we're not geographically close, yes, absolutely, I can do that. Beautiful. Well, thank you again, and I'm, I'm happy to know these services are out there. Thanks so much. <laughs> thank you, Becky. We hope you've enjoyed your time with us today. We'd love for you to get further connected with our project. You can find the links in the podcast information. You can also find the Death Dialogues Project on Facebook, on Instagram, and at www.deathdialogues.net. Take good care and see you next time.